Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the, the wonderful gospel of our Lord Jesus and what he has done by coming into this world to save people like us. And we pray that as we think about these things now, that you would graciously equip me and graciously enable all of us to understand and receive and apply these things in our lives for your glory's sake. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, please do have open in front of you that passage of scripture which we read earlier on in our service this morning. We're in 1 Timothy, it's chapter 1, and we're going to be focusing this morning just on verses 12 through to 17, this short section. And right in the middle of it is one of the great summaries of the gospel. Paul says there, doesn't he, in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now maybe you've come across the name Thomas Bilney. Some of you have, I'm sure. He was one of the early martyrs of the Reformation. And uh, this verse was instrumental in his conversion. This is how he describes his conversion experience. He says, I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1. O most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul. It is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief and principal. He goes on, this one sentence, through God's instruction and inward working, did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins, and being almost in despair, that even immediately, I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvellous comfort and quietness, insomuch that my bruised bones leaped for joy. It's a great privilege, isn't it, this morning, that we can come to that same sentence and the, the verses that surround it as well. And I trust that as we do so, that indeed it would exhilarate our hearts and that it would fill us with that marvellous comfort, just as it did for Thomas Bilney all those years ago. So let's look at this um, trustworthy saying as Paul describes it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, the fact that Paul calls it a saying, that probably means that it was a phrase that was common currency in the church in those days. Maybe it was a line from a hymn that they sang. Maybe it was part of an early Christian creed. But wherever this saying has come from, Paul gives it his apostolic seal of approval here. He's saying to Timothy, that saying that you're familiar with, that saying that all the, the Christians are using is a good one. It's a trustworthy one. It is a true summary 
of the gospel message. And I want you to see that it's a, a sentence that describes a rescue, doesn't it? It talks of a certain person coming to rescue certain people from a certain situation. That's what the gospel is, in essence. It's the story of a rescue. How a certain person came to rescue certain people from a certain situation. And I'd like us to try and unpack this saying by asking three questions of it this morning. Uh, Firstly, and most obviously, who is the rescuer of whom Paul speaks in this sentence? Who is the rescuer in this rescue story? And well, Paul tells us three things about the rescuer. Firstly, he is Christ. Christ is his official title, if you like. Christ is the the Greek word which translates the Hebrew word for Messiah. And as you may know, that word means the promised and anointed king whom God would provide and who would rescue and rule and defend his people forever and ever. The one who would be the king over an eternal kingdom. Of his dominion there would be no end. Paul is saying the rescuer in this great story is that promised king, the Christ, the Messiah, the one whom the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to, the one who they were expecting with eager expectation, looking for his arrival. And at last, this promised king, this Christ, this Messiah, came in order to be the rescuer. And the second thing that we learn about the rescuer is that he's Jesus. And if Christ is his uh, official title, Jesus is his human name. Now, I don't know if they had birth certificates in those days, but if they did have birth certificates, then uh, Mary and Joseph, whenever they went to the registry office to register uh, the birth, uh, that's what they would have written on the the certificate. Uh, We want to call this baby boy Jesus, because God told us to. And in fact, the name Jesus literally means the Lord saves. Again, it underlines, doesn't it, the fact that this person is the one who came in order to rescue. And then there's one further thing that Paul tells us about this rescuer in this statement. And that is that, yes, he's the Christ, the promised king. Yes, he's the human being, Jesus. But notice that the third thing that he says next, it's easy to miss. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world. It's very easy to just skip past those words as if they don't add anything to the story. But actually there is something profound, there's something mind-blowing that Paul is saying there. When a a new baby is born, we, we sometimes use this kind of phrase, don't we? We say, such and such a couple, they've had a a baby boy or a baby girl and their baby came into the world on such and such a day. But strictly speaking, that phrase doesn't really make sense, does it, when we use it in that way. Because their baby didn't come into the world, because their baby has never been anywhere else except the world. It's just you couldn't see them before. They were in their, their mother's womb. 
but you understand that the entirety of their existence has all been played out in this world and in this world alone. But when Paul says that this rescuer, Christ Jesus, came into the world, he's using that phrase in its exact literal sense. And yes, as far as the human nature of Jesus is concerned, he'd never existed anywhere else before his conception. But there is more to Jesus, of course, than just his human nature. He is fully divine as well. And as far as his divine nature is concerned, he pre-existed his own conception. That is, he is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, eternal, unchangeable. And then a little over 2,000 years ago, he came into the world, literally. He took to himself a human nature, and he was born here on earth as the person Jesus, And he came in order to fulfill that role of being the Christ, being the promised king. This, you see, is who the rescuer is in this greatest story of all. Christ Jesus came into this world. And if that's who the rescuer is, uh, then the next question is, well, who are those who are rescued? Who are those who are rescued? And Paul just has one word to describe those who are rescued. He, He just calls them sinners doesn't he? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And it's not a word which people like to use very much nowadays or that people like to hear being used for that matter. But it is the perfect word to sum up who we are before God. To be a sinner means to be someone who has rebelled against God in their heart. We sometimes say this to the the children here, don't we? That the word sin stands for shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rules. And if you've said that to God in your heart, then inevitably that then spills out into the rest of your life, into your words, into your thoughts, into your actions, into the way that you relate to God, but as well as that, the way that you relate to other people. And the Bible is very clear, this is a universal condition and with the the single exception of Jesus Christ himself, sin has had its wicked way with every human being who has ever lived. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. And the consequence of this is that we're all guilty before this God, facing his right, just punishment for our sin. A punishment which the Bible is very clear goes on forever in hell that's who we all are by nature Paul says to the Ephesians you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And amazingly, these are the people whom Christ Jesus came into the world to save. He didn't come to save good people. He didn't come to call those who think they're righteous. He came to call sinners. Those who are well have no need of a doctor. Christ Jesus came to save lost 
helpless, rebellious, God-hating, hell-deserving sinners. People like me, people like you. And the final thing to ask of this saying is, well, what does this rescue involve? If Christ Jesus is the one who came into the world as the rescuer, and if those whom he came to rescue are sinners, what actually is the rescue itself? When Paul says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, what actually is Paul packing into those two little words in the English? To save. The answer is that he saved his people by dying for them. He went to the cross, and though he was without sin himself, he took upon himself all of the the sin, all of the guilt of all of his people, and he suffered all of their punishment, all of their hell, once and for all. He did it for them so that they wouldn't have to go there themselves. And you see, there is an amazing divine love at the heart of this rescue story, isn't there? That this great rescuer would suffer so much in order to rescue those who clearly do not deserve it in any way. Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 5, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the greatest story there is, isn't there? The gospel is the greatest rescue story in the whole world, the whole universe. And Paul says it is faithfully summed up for us in this wonderful, trustworthy saying. Just eight words in the Greek. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And not only is that saying trustworthy in itself, not only is it a a faithful summary of the gospel story, but as well as that, Paul says, it is deserving of full acceptance. That is, this is a saying that demands a response, and the right response to it is acceptance of it, full acceptance of it. And so the question is, well, what have you done with this statement? How have you responded to what it teaches us? Have you accepted, first of all, what it says about who Jesus is? That he is the eternal son of God who took to himself a human nature and who came into this world as the person Jesus so that he can fulfill this role of being the promised Christ. And then have you accepted what this saying says about who you are? That whatever else you are, at the end of the day, you are a sinner before God like the rest of us. Deserving his condemnation. And therefore in desperate need of being rescued from it. And have you accepted what this saying tells us about what Jesus has done? That he came to save sinners and that he did so by dying for them. And have you trusted in him to be your rescuer? This is a trustworthy saying. It's deserving of full acceptance. And in the verses that surround this great saying, Paul unpacks the the grand scale of this rescue story. And he shows us the scale of this rescue 
in three different dimensions. He shows us the personal dimension of this rescue. He shows us the global dimension of the rescue. And he shows us the eternal dimension of the rescue. And in the remaining of our time this morning, I'd like us to spend just a few minutes looking at each of these three dimensions of this great rescue story. We'll start with that personal dimension of it. And in verses 12 to 14, Paul speaks of his own personal experience of this rescue in his own life. And you know what Paul was like before he was rescued by Jesus, don't you? He says, formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. In Acts 26, the Apostle Paul is making his defense against Agrippa. And Paul, as he speaks before Agrippa, describes what it was like before he was a Christian. And he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was the great enemy of the early church. He was convinced that he should do everything in his power to try and stamp out the church, to try and oppose Jesus in every way. That's why he describes himself in verse 15 as the foremost of sinners. It's hard to think of anyone who had been so intent on persecuting the church and persecuting Christ. Paul was the foremost sinner. But Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's what he did for Paul. On the Damascus Road, he, he, Paul met the risen Jesus. And amazingly, not only was Paul converted, but as well as that, he was commissioned in due course to take the news of this rescue, this gospel, to the Gentile world. And Paul says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul describes the, the grace of Jesus Christ as if it's a, a mighty river, something that cannot be contained, can't be stopped, can't be hemmed in. This great powerful river that, that bursts its banks and this irresistible grace sweeps up everything that is in its path. Even the foremost of sinners, like the Apostle Paul, swept up into this overflowing grace. And this overflowing grace of Jesus, when it came to Paul, completely changed him, didn't it? He says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. As someone has put it, when the Nile overflows, crops abound. And when grace overflows, faith and love spring up. And Paul saw this miraculous Dramatic change going on in his own life. He used to hate Jesus. But now he trusts in Jesus. He puts all his faith in Jesus. He recognizes that Jesus is the great rescuer. And he relies upon him for that rescue. And not only that, but also he used to hate the church. 
He wanted Christians killed. He cast his vote against them so that they would be killed. And now he loves them. Now they're his brothers and sisters. And this newfound faith in Jesus and this newfound love for fellow Christians, Paul says, can only be attributed to the grace of Jesus, which overflowed even for him. If you're a Christian, then the same is true for you as well, isn't it? That here you are this morning as a Christian person, and in most cases, I don't know what you were like before you were a Christian. But whatever you were like, the fact of the matter is that here you are today, and you trust Jesus, and you love his people. And it is only because you yourself were swept up in the overflowing grace of Jesus Christ. That's the personal dimension of this rescue story, isn't it? But there are more dimensions for us to discover. And you see that in verse 16, Paul then turns to the global dimension of this great rescue. And he thinks now of all the other millions of people from across the world and down the centuries who are going to come to experience the same grace of Jesus Christ. And you see, as Paul reflects on his personal experience of the grace of Jesus, it it makes him ponder this question. Why in eternity past did God choose to save me? That's what Paul is asking. Why in eternity past did God choose to save me? And in one sense, the answer to that question is exactly the same for Paul as it is for every other Christian. The answer is this, he chose you because he loves you and he loves you because he loves you. You see, there is no deeper reason than the love of God, his mere good pleasure exercised towards you in saving love. He chose you because he loves you and he loves you because he loves you. He didn't choose to save you because of anything that's in you but because of what is in him. And yet Paul knows that there is actually another reason why he was chosen for salvation. Something unique about his experience of grace. And Paul shows us that additional reason in verse 16. He tells us there, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And you see, by showing this grace and this mercy to someone like Paul, of all people, Jesus was putting on display his perfect patience. And he was doing so for the benefit of everyone who later on would come to believe in him for eternal life. When God chose Paul for salvation, it was for your benefit. And it was for my benefit as well. Because if we're honest, there are days, aren't there, when as Christians we still sin, sometimes in dreadful ways. And on those days you can start thinking to yourself, well, Jesus is fed up with me now. He's had enough of me. This is surely the last straw. Am I even a Christian anymore? Jesus is going to reject me because he's run out of patience with someone like me. 
And yet in scripture stands this example of the Apostle Paul in whose personal experience of grace is displayed the perfect patience of Jesus. And it teaches us that if grace can flow even to Paul, then that same grace can flow to us as well, no matter what sins we have fallen into. Through faith in Jesus, his grace flows to us as well. And of course, it applies to those who are not yet Christians as well. Maybe that's you this morning. And maybe you think to yourself, well, all of this talk of grace and forgiveness and being rescued by Jesus, it sounds good in theory, but in practice, I'm beyond the pale. The things I've done in my life, the things that I've said, the things that I've thought, surely they disqualify me from ever being a Christian. And again, Paul's testimony is a display of the perfect patience of Jesus. That if his grace can flow even to someone who has persecuted the church, someone who opposed the gospel, someone who hates Christians, that same grace can flow to you as well. This overflowing grace of Jesus is offered to you this morning. And then finally, in verse 16 and beyond, Paul unpacks the eternal dimension of this great rescue. And he's saying to us here, the repercussions of this great rescue accomplished by Jesus when he came into the world to save sinners. It will not just echo down throughout the world and down the centuries, but actually even into eternity and forevermore beyond that. And the eternal dimension is this, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And you see this great rescue, the rescue that was accomplished when Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, it will redound to God's glory for all eternity. And if you're a Christian, then 10 million years from now, you will still be talking about this rescue. And you'll still be thinking about this rescue. And you'll still be singing about this rescue, just as we have done this morning. Only we will do so in glory. It redounds to eternity. This rescue has an eternal dimension. John Calvin, commenting on these words, writes as follows. Paul's enthusiasm breaks out into this exclamation since he could find no words to express his gratitude for what could be more wonderful than Paul's conversion. At the same time, he admonishes us all by his example that we should never think of the grace shown in God's calling without being lost in wondering admiration. How great a deep is the glory of God. Just look at how Paul describes God in these words. He is the king of the ages. That is, he, he's the God who reigns over all things, both this age and the age to come. The king of the ages. And he's the immortal God. He isn't subject to decay and destruction. He will never change. He's the God in whom there is life itself, imperishable and incorruptible. He's the invisible God. 
As Paul's going to say later on in this letter, this God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. And he is the only God. There is none like him. He is uniquely God. And it is to this God that Paul ascribes honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the eternal dimension of our great salvation, the great rescue accomplished by Jesus. It is all for the glory of God forevermore. Let's give him our praise now as we come to him once more in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel, this wonderful rescue story that your eternal son became man. He took a human nature, body and soul, and he was born amongst us as the person Jesus. And he came into this world in order to fulfill the great expectation and the great longing of your people that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, would come to rule and defend and save his people and establish an everlasting kingdom. We thank you that Jesus came into this world for people like us, people who are by nature and by practice sinful people. And we know that we deserve nothing other than your condemnation. But Jesus Christ came into this world in order to save people just like us. We praise you that he did so by even going to the cross in our place, dying the death that we deserve, taking all of the divine punishment we deserve before rising again. We praise you for the wonderful dimensions of this great rescue that personally grace overflows to us so that faith and love spring up in our hearts. We thank you for the global dimension that throughout the world and down the centuries so many others have come to believe in Jesus for eternal life and grace has overflowed for them as well. And even as we praise and thank you for this great salvation now, we look forward even to the eternal dimension of this rescue, that for all eternity we will join together with the choir of heaven and we will ascribe honor and glory to you because of what Jesus has done for us. In his precious name, we pray all of these things. Amen.